Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 61, Spectre of the Gun. try to keep us from doing this episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, for that is impossible. Try instead to remember the truth. The truth? There is no podcast. Uh, you're blowing my mind. I start the show by blowing your mind. That's what I do, <laughs> my friend. Hi, everybody. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion, and you should know by now exactly what we do. We pick apart Star Trek one episode at a time, looking for the morals, meanings, messages, and all the good stuff hidden therein. And sometimes the bad stuff, too, but, you know, you take the good, you Wait, take the no, no, bad. No, 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 let's go down this road again. <laughs> all right, sorry about that. <laughs> you are not quoting 80s sitcom lyrics again. Oh, dude, try and stop me. Well, not in this episode. All right, fine, <laughs> fine. I'm sure it'll happen again. Uh, this week we are talking about the specter of the gun in which portion of the Enterprise crew finds itself on a planet about to have a uh, shootout at the OK Corral. Whether they want to or not. Yeah, that's the interesting part of it. Yeah, well, there are a few, there, there are a few sort of whether you want it or not things going on in this episode, but... We can hit some of those a bit later. The first thing that we hit every week, and 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 when I say hit, I mean we just you know well and well when I say we, let me start again. The first thing that gets hit every week, and when I say hit, I mean gets knocked out of the park, is mm-hmm. trivia brought to us by none other than Mister John Champion. Wow, look at that introduction. Thank you, Ken. Yeah. Uh, this week, the show Spectre of the Gun was written by our old friend Lee Cronin. You remember him, Ken? He's the guy who wrote Spock's Brain. Ah. Uh, uh, oh, but but wait, you may not remember the name because you may actually be thinking of Gene L. Kuhn. Again, he had left Paramount and he was at Universal Studios by the time, but he was still fulfilling his obligation for the stories that he had created for Star Trek. Um, so the, 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 don't let the name throw you. Uh, but what I really like about this is that uh, for the discovered documents this week, uh, I've got a really interesting uh, a couple of tidbits in there for you. So we have a memo from Gene Roddenberry about paying Lee Cronin for his stories. Um, and, and there's actually a couple of pieces to this, so you can dig through and uh, and see those various pieces. Uh, one of those, just the regular order, is just please play Lee Cronin. Here's the amount of money he's getting for six stories with options for teleplays. And there's a list of the six shows that he did. Um, but the other memo that follows that, uh, that, that actually, it was written before, but it, it follows it in terms of actually getting the thing paid. So it's a memo from Gene Roddenberry to Marvin Katz saying, please negotiate this deal to pay Lee Cronin to do six stories. Payment will be made to Pick Productions and Reese Halsey will fill you in on all the details. If you want the backstory on this, please contact me by telephone. So I love this. I love this little memo because it's a glimpse into why the name Lee Cronin is there and not the name Herb Solo. And if you read between the lines, it's Gene Roddenberry saying, okay, call me. Let's not have this on the record in a memo. Uh, I will tell you what's going on here. So it's kind of a cool little memo that we've got in the uh, discovered documents. Forgive me, maybe I got a little lost there. You said why it said Lee Cronin, not Herb Solo. Did you mean 
Why it's Lee Cronin, not... Oh, not, not Gene Kuhn. Okay. Yes. I wanted to make sorry, sure that sorry I hadn't... Sorry for mixing those two up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, definitely two different people. Uh, but that that is the uh, the memo that we have. And I just found it very entertaining. Um, the original script was called Execution 1872. That was the original draft title. Uh, it also had a title of Execution and uh, the gunfight. And uh, one of the points in the original script is that there is a red shirt death not a Chekhov death oh oops spoiler alert <laughs> but uh, there should have been a red shirt death in this episode it was the first episode filmed for season three and uh, one of the reasons that we see more of Chekhov here is that was kind of uh, a directive from on top uh, at the close of season two is to say hey let's give more for Chekhov to do now, of course, the budget cuts account for the lack of location shooting in this episode, but uh, they were very creative with the production design on this episode. So it uh, definitely has a definite look, uh, different look from the rest of Star Trek that we have seen so far. This aired one day before the anniversary of the shootout at the OK Corral. That took place October 26, 1881. This episode aired on October 25th of 1968. Um, so let's talk just a little bit about the real gunfight at the OK Corral. It did not take place at the OK Corral, in case you were wondering. Uh, it happened in a narrow lot that was uh, a few spaces down from the back entrance of the OK Corral. Um, and it kind of spilled out onto Fremont Street in Tombstone, Arizona. Uh, Ike Clanton actually survived. Uh, that is a plot point that we do not uh, hear about in this episode of Star Trek. And it took place at 3 p.m., not 5 p.m., and it lasted for all of about 30 seconds. Now, in that time frame, more than 30 shots were fired, um, and the opponents were about six feet apart. It's a lot of gunplay and a lot of bullets in a very short period of time in a very small space. Uh, Virgil Earp was the town marshal of Tombstone, Arizona, not Wyatt, even though there's much more known about Wyatt Earp, uh, and much has been fictionalized about the shootout. Uh, but it didn't really become part of popular lore of the American West until the 1930s, when a book about it was first published, and then all those subsequent movies were made. Um, after the gunfight, there was an assassination attempt on Virgil. There was a successful attempt on Morgan Earp. And Wyatt then went on his own ride uh, as a vendetta for his dead brother. Uh, and by the way, D. Kelly actually played Morgan Earp in the movie Gunfight at the OK Corral, which came out about 11 years before this episode of Star Trek. <laughs> Howdy stranger, you must be new in town, why don't you belly up to the bar, toss back a whiskey, and ear tell of the time the Earp boys nearly killed that gang from the future. Prologue. Something is trying to get the attention of the Enterprise. Kirk and crew are on their way to make contact with the Melkotians, but the alien Bowie has other ideas. Hi, we're the Melkotians. Don't make contact with us. Go away. You won't get another warning. It says all of that in perfect English to Kirk's ear. No, wait, it was Russian, says Chekhov. No, 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 it was Swahili, says Uhura. Um, that was Vulcan, says Spock. Great. Telepathy. 
still were supposed to make contact with the milk oceans, whether they wanted or not. Spock warns that dealing with true telepaths can be risky, but they have their orders. Kirk broadcasts the message. They're coming over. In peace. Down on the planet, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Chekhov, and Scotty have beamed into a thick fog. Where there shouldn't be fog. I'm sorry, am I the only one who remembers what happened on the planet with Sylvia and Korob? Also, nothing is working. Communicators, tricorders, nothing. Out of the fog, a squid on a stick, with glowing eyes. In an accusing tone, it says, Aliens! As we head to the opening credits. Act 1. Turns out the squid on a stick is a Melkotian? Maybe? He totally warned them away from coming down here, so their deaths will be on Kirk's head, and by the way, you are gonna die. Yours shall be the pattern of your death. With phaser drawn, Kirk says, They come in peace, though they will defend themselves if they have to. That doesn't impress the Melkosian, though. Without so much as a blink of his glowing eyes, the interlopers are standing on the set of a western. The phaser Kirk had been holding is suddenly a six-shooter. Now, when I say they're on the set of a western, I'm not making fun of the scenery. It really is a set. Fronts of buildings, but no backs. Doors that are a little more than passages to still being outside. Think Our Town on Star Trek. Set in the late 1800s. 1881, to be exact. October 26th, 1881, to be excruciatingly exact. The place, Tombstone, Arizona. Why here and now? Bones has a problem with all of them treating their situation as if they're actually in Tombstone in 1881, but Spock says, deal with it, man. As far as what the Melkotians intend for us, we might as well be. Across the way of peace, in the parlance of the times, the sheriff of the town, one John Behan, calls to them. He knows them, though not as officers of the Enterprise. They are the Clanton Gang. Kirk is Ike, and the rest of them are other members of the Clanton Gang. Ike's the important one. He's the leader. And now Kirk knows why October 26, 1881 was sticking in his head. That's the day that the gunfight at the OK Corral happened. The fight where... Oh, yeah, where the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday killed lots of members of the Clanton gang. So, things are not looking awesome for our men in yellow, blue, and red. They see a man get shot. Bones checks him. He's dead. So, yeah, death's a possibility here. Into a saloon they go, where Chekhov is rushed by a lovely young woman... She's so glad to see Billy that she starts making out with him on the spot. Everybody's surprised to see the Clantons back in town. After all, the Earps are looking to kill the Clantons. Morgan Earp is in the saloon. He obviously wants to start shooting, though Spock suggests the Enterprise officers sit very still. Kirk and Earp have a short standoff, wherein Earp says they'll be killing all the Clanton gang soon. Turns out soon is 5 o'clock tonight. Kirk starts trying to get the guys out of it. They'll not be at the OK Corral at 5 o'clock. Also, he starts telling everybody, he's not Ike Clanton, he's Captain Kirk. And no one believes him. Not Ed the bartender, not Wyatt and Virgil Earp. Despite their different clothes and different faces, everyone sees the Clanton gang who, lest we forget, the Earps and Doc Holliday plan to kill. He tries to make peace with the Earps, but that's a non-starter. Act 2. It goes on like this for a while. The Enterprise guys try to figure out what they can make to get out of their predicament, they also try to get out of Dodge, by which I mean out of Tombstone. But they can't. A force field stops them at the city limits. So what can they use to stop the Earps without killing them? They can't use the guns, since those were given to them by the Melkotians. Bones thinks they could make a tranquilizer out of plants and snake venom. Because let's face it, when you're a syringe, everything looks like a vein through which you can shoot junk. 
Won't be a syringe, though. Spock says he can make a gas grenade. Off they all go to find the supplies that they need. Not surprisingly, there's tension about. Bones goes to the local dentist to get the supplies he needs, though. Turns out Doc Holliday is actually a doctor of dentistry. He playfully gives Bones the supplies he seeks, like a cat playing with a mouse. He fares better than Chekhov, though. Chekhov is shot dead by Morgan Earp. Act 3. Scotty is ready to kill the Earps, though Kirk and Spock point out it's not their time. Spock is straight back to work on their tranquilizer grenades, which leads to the usual, you have no feelings, you forget I'm half-human, discussion. There is one thing bothering Spock. Chekhov was supposed to survive the gunfight at the OK Corral. Well, Billy was. But now Billy Chekhov is dead. So this isn't going exactly as it was supposed to go which means it can be changed. Kirk tries to enlist the help of Sheriff Behan. Get him to stop the Earps, but Behan won't hear it. The Clantons have wanted to kill the Earps for years. The people in town want the Earps dead. But the Clanton gang will have to make that happen on their own. Sheriff Behan promises he will not prosecute the Clantons for killing the Earps, but he's not going to help them either. Back at the saloon, Spock, Bones, and Scotty are prepping the tranquilizer grenades. Things have gone so well, Spock even commends McCoy's ingenuity. They're convinced that nothing can go wrong, but Kirk wants the grenade tested. Scotty offers to inhale the tranquilizer, and he doesn't fall over. Turns out something could go wrong. Except really, nothing could go wrong. There is no way Scotty shouldn't be knocked out. Because if there's one thing McCoy knows how to do, it's cook up some stuff that'll put you through the floor. Kirk is really annoyed, but Spock agrees. Nothing could have gone wrong. Kirk decides the best course of action is to stay in the saloon until after 5 o'clock, though no sooner does he announce that plan than all four of the men are instantly blipped to the OK Corral. Act 4. Kirk and crew try to run from the corral, but now there's a force field around that. Spock is still stuck on the failure of the tranquilizer grenade. Nothing could have gone wrong. The tranquilizer did not work because, wait for it... All of this is unreal. If we think we're here and can die here, then we are, and we can. So we have to believe that the bullets aren't real. Then they can't kill us. Problem is, the only one with the mental discipline to hang on to that belief is Spock. Everyone else is a little too tied to their senses. Spock will have to mind-meld them into believing, now knowing that the bullets aren't real. That way, they won't die. For as you believe, so shall you do. And that does it. The herbs show up to kill the Clantons, shoot them at point-blank range, and nothing. The bullets have no effect on the Enterprise officers, though they do destroy what's behind them. And with that, the men are back aboard the Enterprise. Even Chekhov. He doesn't know he was dead, so of course, he wasn't. Incoming call from the Melkotians. Say, Captain Kirk, you, uh, you know, you could have killed Wyatt Earp, but you didn't. Are your people really peaceful? Kirk says they are, and they would still love to talk to them about the Federation. The Melkotian says they should come back. They'll have a civilized discussion this time. Spock calls Kirk out a tiny bit. He did want to kill Wyatt, didn't he? Sure he did, but he didn't kill him. He chose not to kill on this day. Overcoming that base desire is how humans made it to the stars. The end. Very nicely said, Ken. And, uh, hey, there was... a few little things that I uh, was playing around with for trivia, but I didn't mm-hmm. put in there because I wanted to know if you noticed them. Um, 
Did you notice how the uh, the sign for the sheriff's office is the font from the Star Trek titles? Yes. I loved that. That was kind of cool. I love that. It's like a, a little in-universe nod. You know, I, I like it when, when well, things like that happen. It's not necessarily just an in-universe nod. I mean, I'm assuming that the opening credits from Star Trek are sort of, you know, futuristic looking and what the people in Star Trek might see as well. Not that you're seeing mm-hmm. a lot of signs at that point, but... It felt to me, actually, like like that was not only a nod, but also an indication that all of this stuff is made up out of Kirk's head. Right. I mean, so, I mean, of course, he's seeing a font that he would normally see. Now, then again, the Tombstone newspaper was, you know, like an old newspaper. If that had right. been the same font as well, that would have been a little bit more sort of ubiqui in a way, you know, like everything's just kind of fake. Right, right. Well, it, speaking of how all of this is in Kirk's head, it, it's interesting that both he and Spock, the Vulcan, who knows everything about Earth history, mm-hmm. have excellent memories for what happened during this one very specific historical event. Um, now, if I asked you, you could probably name all the major people who played a role in the assassination of Kennedy. Um, <laughs> well, all the ones but- we know about. kidding kidding go ahead Uh, but but, you know if i asked you to name five people who died at the battle of iwo jima or more recently you know name five of the people who were um in the raid on bin laden's compound or or anything else you know you would have a very very sketchy idea of this so it's interesting that they played with that in the episode where he they could kind of remember a little and you have this very uh, two-dimensional town that they're in but they know like oh yeah you're this guy you're that guy and you died this way and you know yeah. just, of all the things that they would know there must have been a crash course on uh, old american west at good old starfleet academy you know i always have a hard time anytime anybody remembers anything about history i always wonder why they didn't know who Khan was in space seed i mean right. the eugenics war Khan actually took over well, the world, right? Or at least he was fighting yeah. for you know, dominance of the world. And in fact, once their memories are jogged, Scotty's like, oh, yeah, Khan was the one. You know, when we studied that, Khan was always the one that I always thought was, yeah, he was kind of the cool one, you know, as opposed yeah. to the quiet one or the cute one or the one who's spoken for. Um, it's, it's, he always thought that Khan was kind of cool, but nobody recognizes Khan. And in fact, there are people who have to have it explained to them who Khan is. And he took over the world in the 1990s. <laughs> right. Right. But, you know, five guys or well, one, two, three, four, five, eight guys, however many, uh, three, five. Yes, eight. OK, so eight guys at the OK Corral, which affected <laughs> absolutely nothing, but became sort of a giant story throughout history. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that is sort of. Uh, yeah. Why? Why that's burned in their mind to the point that that Kirk's like, wow, yeah, October 26th. Why does that ring a bell? Are you kidding me? OK. We, we can only imagine that Tombstone, the movie, is still just wildly popular in the 23rd century. Tombstone, things, Tombstone you know? is a fantastic movie. It is. It is yeah. a fantastic movie, and we will be talking about that again in a bit. <laughs> we, we definitely will. Hey, um, you have to ask yourself if the Melkotians got their puppet heads uh, from the same place where Balok uh, bought his monster puppet. Um, wait. I, I'm very sorry. That was not a puppet head. I think that that's actually a Melkotian. You think that's what they look like? They just look like um, giant, scary puppet heads? I don't think we know, but I think okay. we'll also revisit that in the next segment. Okay. Oh, good. I, that sounds like you have a theory. Well, we'll get to it. <laughs> there's a possibility, but go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I'd also like to point out that uh, Spock really took his own sweet time with the mind meld. 
uh, seems like he needs to tighten that up because they were about to die. You know, the, the clock was ticking. We, we heard the, the gongs going off for five o'clock right. and, uh, and he's still doing the whole, my mind to your mind, you know, like, come on, these guys are going to be here any minute now. Well, there were, uh, there were three of them though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And he's got to go through all three of them. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not. I mean, come on, dude. How long does it take you to do your mind meld? Maybe you're much better at it than Mister Spock is. Maybe it just. Uh, he is half human, you know. Cut him at least fifty percent of the slack. Well, if I knew that there were people coming after me with guns and going to kill me, you well, don't want to hurry that stuff up, though. I mean, bear in mind. Uh, no, you know. Pardon the reference. Uh, keep it in your thoughts. He's actually going in and reprogramming somebody's mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, he uh, well, he's reconnecting things in their neural pathways. True, true. Yeah. And and I really hope that wears off for the next time they're faced with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right. Well, luckily they only it only they only there's only gunplay on planets where it's not going to matter. I mean, remember uh, uh Bones got uh, shot. Yeah. No, he got run through. There's, That's right. He got lanced. Yeah. yeah but, he could have gotten yeah, shot. Just wandering around with a gun like, "Hey, yeah. look at my gun. I'm just shooting, shooting all everything. over the place." Exactly. Yeah. Which turns out would have been fine on that planet because they just take you underground and, you know, do something to you that's apparently not horrific to a man of medicine, and then he pop you back up and you're fine. And, you right. know, the same thing happens here. Chekhov gets shot. And um, you see, the thing is, though, well, that's next segment, too. Ah, okay. go ahead. There's so much stuff. There's so much stuff. Go <laughs> ahead. so much stuff. Um, I, I kept thinking the Melkosians and the Tolosians should meet each other and just fight it out in mm-hmm. a battle of mental manifestations. Like, that would be a great show. Yeah. You know, yeah. that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, a good title for this episode actually would have been The Other Cage. <laughs> right. I like that. The Cage and then The Other Cage. The Other Cage, and yeah. We'll throw the menagerie in the middle. Just yeah. any, it, we ran out of euphemisms for cage, so now we're just The Other Cage. Yeah. The Cage, <laughs> the, the Menagerie, and The Killing Cage, maybe, because this was not supposed to be, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, The Cage was actually uh, sort of um, benign compared mm-hmm. to this, compared to what's mm-hmm. going on here. And yet, you're right. You can't. You can't watch one without thinking of either. Well, you can yeah. watch the first one without thinking of this one, but you can't watch this one without thinking of that. Right, right. Hey, uh, do you have any idea why the Makoshians would blow up their uh, space buoy at the end? It's like, hey, we're, you passed the test. You're great. And now we're just going to blow this thing up. We can't call it back in. We can't just move it out of your way to welcome you to our planet. We're going to blow it up. We're going to make a show out of it. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know why they would do that exactly. I will say it was a bit disco. I mean, maybe maybe mm-hmm. somebody decided, all right, well, we'll go ahead and make friends with these guys, but let's try to come up with a scary buoy next time because people really aren't being frightened off by this, you know, crystal thing that you have to sell in the seventh grade. I mean, you know, oh, this will be perfect either hanging from your rearview mirror or trying yeah. to ward off a spaceship. Well, now yep. it turns out it'll just be perfect hanging from your rearview mirror. <laughs> Nobody really cares that the, you know, that the giant. What, what what kind of crystal is it? What's what is it that they say? It's fake. It's like Corinthian leather. It's, oh, it's like, like like cubic zirconia. No, like Austrian that, crystal or something oh, like that. Okay, I can't remember. Okay. Which may I'm sorry if you listen and you make your money in Austrian crystal. I apologize. What you do yeah. is fine. Um, but yeah, it well, reminds, what the Malkosians do is not okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what we say. <laughs> I think I've got this episode figured out. It's Gunsmoke, meets Buck Rogers, meets the Matrix, meets the Cage, meets a taste of Armageddon, meets and the children shall lead, meets the Menagerie. If I've learned anything 
I've learned that for Kirk, violence is definitely not the answer ever. It, violence is never, ever the answer, especially when he is the one to whom the violence is directed. Then it is definitely not the answer, um, except for maybe all those times where he needs to dispense with some violence. In fact, Kirk in this, he's really good at the nonviolence until the end, which I thought was very interesting. The, the Earps are just firing away, firing, firing, firing. And then when they've had their fun, Kirk just goes in for the roundhouse kick and holds a gun to his face. Yeah, well, I think you're letting Kirk off a tiny bit easy, though. I mean, really, the very first thing he did, and I think I had the order out of, I uh, had it out of order a little bit, but the Malkotian, uh-huh. you know, says, well, now you're going to die. And Kirk says, we come in peace. And then he draws his phaser. And he says, but we will defend ourselves if we have to. <laughs> right. So, yes. I mean, he's basically yes. laid out the whole thing there where I'm going to mostly be good, but mm-hmm. I am packing heat. Now, yep. it might also be worth remembering Nothing else he has actually works. Right. <laughs> I mean, we already Thanks. know that the uh, that the uh, communicator doesn't work. We know that the uh, tricorder doesn't work. Is there any reason to think that the phaser is going to work at that point? But here's the thing. So we, after the herbs have just shot every round that they have, yeah. what is the point of roundhouse kicking him in the face? Well, Could, could, Couldn't Kirk just say, okay, you shot all your rounds. You're not doing anything to us. Look, seriously, we're here in peace. We are not going to fight you. See, there's so much about this. This is a mind bleepery episode, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, cause I don't know who he was dealing with when he was dealing with the herbs. I don't know if the herbs were actually being controlled by, I mean, there's so much that, that we don't know about this episode. Were the herbs being controlled by any of the Malkotians or did the Malkotians just sort of like read the script from Kirk's brain and then set it in motion? Right. I, I get, and I don't know why, but because I kind of had that question too. I kind of had the impression that the Earps were, yeah, they, they were created avatars that the Malkotians right. were sort of directing around the chessboard. Oh, you see, I didn't get that impression at all. I got the idea mm-hmm. that the Earps that the were just these things set in motion. Now, the question that I had was, uh, for whose benefit is this? You mentioned the Talosians earlier. The whole reason the Talosians, or one of the whole reasons that the Talosians wanted Pike mm-hmm. was because they got off on watching TV. I mean, that's really it. They wanted to see, you know, they wanted the Truman show, except, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. they wanted to watch uh, Vina and Pike make the baby first and then raise the baby. And then, of course, you know, populate the uh, top half of the planet so they could go so back they outside for some yeah. reason. Right. right. Why they want to yeah. go outside, I don't know. They really seem to be having a good time watching TV, but okay. <laughs> Right, right. I couldn't figure out for whose benefit this was, because we, we're we not told that the Melkotians are watching this whole thing. Well, we're basically told that, you know, they got to die. I mean, yep. I, I don't think that part of it actually plays in. I think really well, it's just like, we got 48 minutes, we need to fill a show, let's do a Western. Why are they on a Western planet? Okay. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, there's, because there's, I mean, if the Melkotians really wanted them dead, they could just kill them or, or yeah, make but- them kill themselves. See, I kept thinking about Balok, though. Throughout mm-hmm. this whole thing, I kept thinking yeah. about Balok because it, it, he's somebody who is vulnerable in yes. his real form. Yes. So he has to create all this uh, offensive, defensive uh, uh, way to present himself to the universe. Right. And maybe the Malkotians are the same. I mean, it, all we see is uh, you know a, a head on a stick with some glowing eyes. We, we don't right. know what their, their deal is. So their way of testing, which is very strange because clearly they have power, just like the Talosians do, um, 
but their way of testing to make absolutely sure that they don't get themselves into an alliance with people who could turn on them, who who would kill them, who would exploit them. I mean, imagine if the Klingons had showed up. You know, again, this is one of those episodes where if a bunch of Klingon ships showed up at the same planet, they would just keep sending ships and the Melkoshians would just keep picking them off. <laughs> it's like, okay, now, now you're going to be in this setting and this is based on your imagination and you're just going to fight and you're going to die. Okay, well, wait, let's go back for a second. When you say the Melkotians have power just as the Telosians did, they, they don't really. Well, they, they have a similar got the, kind of power. They, they have a similar... manifest physically yes. to, to make whoever their, their victim, their caged animal is, believe what they are seeing. Well, or can they? I mean, that's the thing. We don't know. I mean, the whole thing that Spock says about these bullets aren't real. I know they look real. I know they feel real, but they're really not. So if you just don't believe in them... Or if you believe in not them specifically, then it's not going to hurt you. Remember what happened in the cage? They like, they like, they're firing their phasers at the uh, at the, at the elevator door, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that doesn't work, and so then they send up to the ship for the big phasers, right? And uh, like the giant like cannon thing. Love it. And they 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 you know, fire that at the door, and it doesn't work. And then afterwards, once they're hit to the whole idea that you know all this stuff has just been in their heads the whole time, yeah, it turns out it does work. Which, which I think is kind of funny because I imagine, you know, that when Kirk calls the Enterprise, they're up there going, yeah, hello. <laughs> hello? <laughs> right. Yes? I mean, because everything actually still works. I mean, that's, that's sort of the weird thing about – so they put together the, uh, you know, the snake venom and, and the cactus stuff and some really great stuff that uh, Bones got from behind the OK Corral from some guy. <laughs> whatever because he's good like that he is so so good with the illicit substances they put yeah. together all this stuff and there's no way it shouldn't work and like and that's that's i mean that's when spock is like okay none of this is real because i saw those things go in there and those things have to work together and so if those things together are not working there are no things there right 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 this this none of this is real but then that's the problem when you do a mind bleepery story there's no telling then what of any of this is real. Like when they say at the end of it that Chekhov has been on the ship the whole time, apparently. Well, does that mean they've all been on the ship the whole time? And then was there actually time involved or did all of that happen in the matter of like three seconds with just those five guys that Kirk would have taken down there had they actually gone down there? And then is yeah, anybody else going to believe yeah. them? I mean, this is like yeah. this is like that. Uh, it's like the uh, contact. Yeah. Right, yeah. where Jodie Foster is in the thing and she's going to go visit the aliens and she drops down and she's gone for however many hours. I think it was like 17 hours or something like that. Right. And she comes back and she tells this story and everybody's like, yeah, you dropped from like up there to down here. Yeah. <laughs> it right. took however long it takes to drop a big thing from that high to this mm-hmm. part. And yet it all did happen for her. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, just, I know oh, I just you're messing with my mind, man. Well, you're dude, with my mind. Yeah. this episode messes with your mind, and yeah. and what's amazing about it too is there are all these other references that we can do. We started off with the Matrix joke because there's Matrix stuff here. <laughs> you mentioned Baylock. You can't help but think about Baylock in this episode. When you well, it is interesting that you you have a lot of uh, superior uh, beings that will give a test. So uh, look back at Arena. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this very much has that same idea as Arena. I, I think it's closer to Balok just because, again, Balok is giving a test for his own protection. Right. Uh, whereas uh, the Metrons and Arena are just like, uh, well, we're going to test you because we're going to test you. And don't <laughs> don't call us. We'll call you. Well, it's interesting to me, though, that you say or you implied earlier that we know what the 
Malkotians look like, where we didn't know that with Balok, we don't know what the Malkotians look like either. I mean, they had this... So they tried to scare the Enterprise off, right? Excuse me. They tried to warn mm-hmm. the Enterprise off. Mm-hmm. And the Enterprise is like, no, we're coming over anyway. And side note, why does the Federation get to decide whether or not I even talk to them? I, I, I understand if they don't want to let me in the yeah. Federation, but if they come to me, you know, it, well, I mean, I, it, you know, I've been woken more than one day by somebody knocking on the door wanting to tell me about whatever religion they're here to tell me about. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing about those people is I can usually say, no thanks, and they go away, mm-hmm. right? The Federation comes to say, let me tell you about the Federation. And people are like, no thanks. And the Federation's like, no, seriously, I'm going to tell you about the Federation. (laughs) When I said, let me tell you about it, what I really meant was settle in. I'm going to tell you. Because I'm going to tell you about it. And then so the Malkotians are like, well, I got a better idea. How about you kill yourself? (laughs) How about I make you kill yourself because I really didn't want to hear it. Now do you understand? Mm -hmm. You know, and and, and to Kirk's credit, he didn't get back to his ship and go, all right, now seriously, let's talk to the Malkotians. It was the Malkotians who reached back out to him. All of that aside, though, um, your assumption, I think, is that we've seen what a Melkotian looks like now. I think we're just seeing phase two. Phase mm-hmm. was one was, you know, we send the disco light show out to them to tell them to go away. Right. They don't. Phase two is, oh, I'm a squid on a stick with glowing eyes. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. And, right. There's, and, and at that point, they're scared, but they're also going to die because they're going to be forced to, you know, kill themselves or think that they're dead or whatever from the Melkotians. Mm-hmm. I don't know that when we go back... I mean, I wonder if the Milkotians even look like anything. They could easily be non-corporeal, pure energy thought beings, mm-hmm. you know, who this time when they come down, it'll, it'll probably be old guys in togas because that tends to be the non-threatening presentation, you know? <laughs> sure, yep. We have no idea what they look like, though, I think. And now if, yeah, this, is, yeah. if this is really what the Milkotians look like, somebody in the FX crew is just phoning it in. <laughs> right, right. Well, again, they they bought the mask from the same place that Baylock bought his. No, they didn't. Yeah. They bought like from his apprentice who quit after two weeks because he couldn't take <laughs> it. But he's telling people that he studied with that guy, right? <laughs> right. I mean, that's really it. Like, I, I studied with Ford Coppola. Yeah, you were an intern for like a day. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. not. You're not the second coming of Ford Coppola. And and as bad as Baylock's puppet was. What is this? This is like mashed potatoes balled together and left out for two days. Right, right, right. With, with lights in the eyes. Hey, um, I, I want to move on to just a little bit because uh, there's a couple of things here that don't quite add up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's very clever, and, and it sort of leads you to what I think the the message of this story is. But it's very clever when uh, they decide that they will try to create a tranquilizer, some sort of nerve gas to just knock out the herbs. Mm-hmm. Um, great. It, yeah, we're going to try to go with a nonviolent method here if negotiation isn't working, which they try very often throughout this episode. Um, and uh, then so they come up with this gas, and then Scotty takes a drink and he's like, yeah, give me the gas. Why didn't the gas knock out Scotty? Because everybody there thought it would work. They go to great lengths to tell you how they thought it would work. And in fact, they all thought that the alcohol was getting them drunk or at least getting Scotty drunk. Um, You know, they're the only ones that they need to convince at that point in order to (laughs) use the gas, right? Right, and, and they and they're convinced that it's going to happen. Yeah, no. they're all in agreement. Spock has this great line, once we are convinced of a reality of a situation, we abide by its rules. And for that moment, they are not abiding by the rules. Yeah. Yeah, and you at know? the same time, how is Chekhov not Neo? 
Yeah. I mean, what he had said was, eh, you know, Morgan Earp's try Morgan Earp tries to shoot me. I'm just going to step around the bullet. Well, mm-hmm. okay. So believing that, he yeah. actually should have been able to stop the bullet or at least dodge it. Right. Yeah. That's. Right. I, I think I started to sudden and and started to say earlier. Excuse me, and distracted myself. That's the problem with so much mind bleepery. Yeah. Right. I mean, it gets to a point where you're like, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, this is awesome. And maybe somebody at some point said, hey, shouldn't he be fine? Shut up. This is awesome. You know, <laughs> right? because right. I mean, it is. But yeah. I, yeah. We, we can hold off on that for a moment. Well, I, you have to find a way in the story to show the whole in the construct. When you do a story like this, whether it's the Matrix or whatever, you, you have to find the way to reveal the whole in the, the reality that they're in for the characters to get it. And it, it, they, they weren't clued in by the, uh, you know, the two-dimensional set pieces they're walking in. Like, hey, th- wait, this is all fake. They weren't clued in by that. <laughs> and, and they weren't clued in by all the town folk not understanding that they are in fact not... Uh, uh, Ike Clanton and his gang. Um, so they, they had to come up with another way to do it. Uh, it just seems like that was, uh, it, it, in terms of the logic of the storytelling, that that's sort of a, a gaping problem with it. Well, um, hang on one second, though. You say that they're not clued in by the fact that the town is pretty much just a set of a town. I didn't mm-hmm. get the sense that they ever thought that they were actually in Tombstone in 1881. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I don't think that they thought that. Right. But, but again, the, the problem in finding the, the, the unreal uh, construct uh, of where they are is like, I, I think that alone would be a clue that, that this is not real enough to actually do us any harm. Well, except all of the things feel real. They're physically real. Even if they yeah. don't think that they're there, they do feel like they're actual things. I mean, one of the first things that Bone says when they, you know, are, are examining their six shooters is, you know, yeah, yeah. whether this stuff is real or not, you know, solid proof. Yeah. <laughs> and he taps on the gun, right, right? Which it turns out, of course, is not solid proof. And that's sort of an interesting thing as well. I mean, Spock is a smart enough guy. I mean, knowing that they're dealing with telepaths, Spock is a smart enough guy to say, yeah, this might not be actually a thing. In mm-hmm. fact, this might not be any things at all. Right. But they're just thrust into it so quickly that there's there doesn't seem to be even um, much time to consider whether any of it's fake. I mean, because it all happens so quickly, right? They see a guy die right in front of them. They're, they were standing one place. They're now standing another. The phaser that he was holding earlier is now this, you know, cold piece of lead or cold mm-hmm. piece of steel with, you know, little pieces of lead inside. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Uh, right. So, I mean, maybe it's maybe it's the, the, the bombardment. Of, of of all the different things going on that sort of keep them from doing the, hey, maybe none of this actually exists kind of thing. Sure, sure. It, it's a funny reveal, though, when Spock actually does that, because they're, they're all sort of walking out toward the final showdown. And Spock is the one who just interrupts and goes, oh, hey, by the way, I figured it out. None of this is real. <laughs> you know? Well, um, at, at least it wasn't that simple, though. I mean, I do love the fact mm-hmm. that, that Bones is like, I mean, that Bones is so tied to his five senses. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and Scotty and Kirk, too. But Bones especially is the one who can say it. You know, like, hey, you know, our brains don't work the same way your brain works. Although it would have been fantastic. It actually would have been a very neat thing with instead of Spock having to go in and rewire them. If he had just been able to talk him through it, mm-hmm. if he had just been able to really convince Bones and more to the point, have McCoy convince himself that, okay, right. Right. I know this can't hurt me. 
You know, I mean, to get McCoy to sort of overcome his own fear rather than Spock to sort of, you know, going in and like breaking the fear circuit for a few minutes. Yeah. It would have actually been a much more, um, would have been a much more matrixy, much more sort of, you know, free your mind thing. But I will say there's a lot of free your mind in this episode for 1968. Right. I, that would have been a very hard thing to do, though, because I, as Spock says in there, um, even one shred of your belief will will ruin this whole thing. That that bullet will be just as real as, as you think. Yeah. Because I, I kind of thought this before. It had been a long time since I've seen this episode. And I kind of thought that in the moment right before they go to the Vulcan mind meld. It's like, oh, okay, are we going to talk our way out of this? Or are we going to come up with some other way? Because even if you tried to convince me <laughs> that, that something was not real that I thought was real, there would still be that one element of doubt that one little bit that would sort of unravel everything that you had, had tried to convince me of, you know? Um, but I do have to admit, this is a pretty great test, you know, put somebody else on the losing side and it, where it's predetermined that you are on the losing side of this thing just to see how you do. Um, maybe a Kobayashi Maru, anybody, anybody. Um, but I do come back to the end of this episode with uh, Chekhov. Um, and, and the fact that he didn't die and they were all on the ship the whole time, probably, maybe, you can interpret it that way. So does that mean that no one would have died, even if they were all shot at Tombstone? Um, or, or what if they did die and that means that they didn't pass the test? Would they have all just dropped dead there on the bridge in real life? And then everybody else on board would just have to go like, oh, hey, uh, four senior officers just died <laughs> just out of nowhere. We saw the probe, four officers died. We have no idea why. Let's turn this around. Let's re- recommend that we not open up diplomatic ties with the Mokoshians. I don't know. That is very strange, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, that's sort of like the, I don't think we're supposed to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, we're not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is, that is kind of, um, yeah, there's a there's a whole lot of like you know, again, just the power of thought. And I, mm-hmm. I jokingly again referred to the Gorgon earlier, but I mean, it really is an as you believe, so shall you do kind of thing, right? So shall you do, which is crazy. I mean, because then you kind of you, you kind of have to question mortality. You, you kind of have to even question whether the Enterprise got away. I mean, there's absolutely <laughs> no telling at this point, which I think we talked about with the, the Cage as well, or uh, even the Menagerie later when it turns out that. Yeah, I mean they're so good with their mind control that there's there's really no guarantee that the Enterprise is not still orbiting that planet right now. Well, you know, three hundred years from now, you know, it would be great hmm. at the end of the episode. They open up diplomatic ties with the Malkoshians. We're all one big happy federation. The Malkoshians are looking through our books and they go, "Hey, what what is this order about not going to Talos?" And somebody from the Federation goes, "Oh, wait, wait, we we're gonna lift that for you. Go." <laughs> Go have fun. <laughs> Let's take a camera. We want to see how this plays out. It's an episode full of mind bleepery. What's real? What's not? And if large portions of it are not real, what can any of it teach us? Messages, morals, meanings. You want them? We got them. Maybe? 
<laughs> we don't really know until we get to this part where we uh, sort of go back and look at the episode and try to figure out what the messages, morals, and meanings were and whether or not they stand the test of time. Um, is there an overriding message in this episode, John? Um, I, well, I think there's probably a couple of messages here. I, I think the the little one that 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 is interestingly explored with the whole mind bleepery, as you call it, um, is getting that solid grip on reality. As Spock said, you know, once you commit to a reality, you abide by its rules. So this idea of, uh, and I don't want to sound too hippy-dippy here, but opening up one's mind to the idea of reality maybe being something that is more of a construct that you do in your head um, is a very interesting mental exercise to go through. Um, I think that's kind of a cool thing to explore, as we did maybe even just on a cursory level here. But if we have to nail it down to the UC Timmy moment, um, violence is it must be the last resort. And and to take it a step further, we can accomplish so much more if we take violence off the table and work to actually understand our situation. Um, I, it, that scene with Kirk running up to the sheriff, it, frantic, <laughs> saying, I won't kill him. The sheriff's, you got to kill him. You got We'll back you up. If you want to kill him, you go right ahead. No, I don't want to kill him. I, I'm so angry about that. I will kill you before I will kill the earth. <laughs> you know, right. um, that was great. Um, I, again, we have to put ourselves in the, the time period of the show. Um, we had Americans dying half a world away in Vietnam. We also had the, the violent turbulence uh, at home with things like, well, only a few years later, John Kennedy dying. That year, Martin Luther King dying, Robert Kennedy uh, dying. You know, all, all these things that are going on that just make you think, okay, 1968 is the end of the world because we can't stop killing each other. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a great message to get across to show that something better can come uh, of that when we really try. Let me let me uh, hit one thing really fast, and I hate mm-hmm. to be the guy who corrects you, but I believe you said uh, a few years later, John Kennedy dying. Of course, you meant a few years earlier. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. of course. Which yeah, I mean, just to yeah. just to yeah. you know, forestall any uh, emails sure. or anything like that. Yeah, five years earlier. Yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right about the violence message being there to take if somebody wants to. I mean, uh, Kirk's not a peacenik all the way through. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. part of the reason I think you could argue that he's not di- uh, he's not going for violence in this episode is because he knows the cards are stacked against him. If yep. he tries to fight his way out of this, he will fail. Yeah. I mean, that's and that's just a given. I mean, that's uh, this whole thing. He doesn't even want to talk about the possibility of using the guns that they have in their hands because I, his assumption seems to be that. Either the guns will blow up in his hands or the guns won't actually fire. I mean, those guns were given to him by the people that are trying to kill him. Mm -hmm. So there's no way he's going to place his faith in that. If you want to go ahead, though, and take it further and say, well, it's it's a good nonviolent message episode, I would agree with you on that. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually have to say I don't think it's necessarily hippy-dippy to take the, as you believe, so shall you do message from this. And Mm -hmm. the reason is because... Here, we're talking about affecting the physical world, and we're talking about the physical world not being able to affect us. And yes, there are the stories of the people trying to levitate the Pentagon, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> right, right. There are some things that 
There is a tiny part of me that doesn't want to say there are some things that are just impossible, because to say that there are some things that are just impossible indicates that there's absolutely no way to get around that. But let's let's leave that off for a second. Let's even talk about you know the whole trying to affect the physical world by just believing beyond the physical world. We mm-hmm. go through life saying that's just the way it is, and some mm-hmm. things will never change. There, I won't reference oh. an 80s theme song, but I will do an 80s song. Nice. We go through life you know, saying, I mean, think about the, the, the upheaval that you're talking about that's going on in 1968 as far as like with the civil rights movement and things like that. Try that in 1958. Yeah. In 1958, anybody who actually hated that would have said that's the way things are. And it takes somebody saying, yeah, that's the way things are right now, or that's the way things seem, but that's not necessarily how it has to be. And I think we've talked about this several times on other episodes of this, and I I think I'm probably the one who ends up sounding hippy-dippy when I say it. (laughs) All the changes that we're talking about start with believing that the changes either need to happen or can happen, right? So it's not terribly hippy-dippy, and personally, I kind of groove on that argument because to start with the man in the mirror, be the change you want to see, blah, 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 (laughs) all that stuff that I hate, like the way it reads and the way it sounds, but it's also stuff that I believe, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, here's the thing. Well, you're quoting uh, more 80s songs. I'll, I'll go back to <laughs> quoting Star Trek. Uh, right. it, you know, there, there's that great moment in this episode. Kirk basically says, like, mankind can kill, is ready to kill, but we overcame our instinct for violence. I, I have to say, it's a good moment, but I like the speech better in A Taste of Armageddon. Yep. We choose says, not to kill on this day. Yeah. yeah. We're barbarians. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. We are. But we can overcome uh, our, our base desires and do something better by not killing. It's great. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating. You could almost make this episode out of clips of other episodes of Star Trek. <laughs> you could, yes. You yeah. almost could. And so then I got to ask you, does the episode hold up? Now, I'm going to really quickly throw in two things that make this episode difficult for me. Okay. Um, Bones, fan of the Georgia Mint Julep. <laughs> is learning about bourbon in this episode. He's Uh reading about bourbon and learning about bourbon from the back of a bourbon bottle. Uh Okay, so was he replaced by a pod person on their way down? Because while he does know how to make a good intravenous drug, he also knows a bit about bourbon. At least that has been the impression that I've had in the past. Okay, and that's a tiny little thing. And I'm joking about that being something that actually gets in my way on this episode. What honestly gets in my way on this episode is I love the movie Tombstone. Mm-hmm. I'm not used to seeing the Earps played as bad guys. I'm used yeah. to seeing, I'm used to like questioning some of their decisions. Yeah. But I mean, you know, go back to My Darling Clementine or go back to Gunfight at the OK Corral or go back to Tombstone or go back to Wad Earp, um, mm-hmm. which I actually haven't seen because I really like Tombstone. Um, and it felt like it was a Coke or Pepsi, McDonald's or Burger King kind of choice that year because they both <laughs> came out the same year. Right. And I had had enough of Kevin Costner, okay? I'm over it now, but yeah. at the time. And, no, I and, agreed. And I think you, I, what my point is, I'm really into Tombstone. Love it. And Love it. and so that, that actually, honestly, if you've watched it a million times, and again, I had a VHS copy that I wore out. I mean, I this is not Wrath of Khan for me, but this is a very, this, this is like one of the movies. This is one of the movies for me. Yeah. Um, it's weird to see the Earps so cardboard and see them just be bad guys. Now, at the same time, they're just pulling a blueprint off, you know, Kirk's brain. And he's got, you know, great memories of some of it, like what day it happened. But he apparently was always more of a Clanton man, since all they're getting is like this one-dimensional, wears black, everybody hates him, 
you know, kind yeah. of a kind of picture of the herbs. All well, of that said, oh, just the fun you can have with the with the were they there? Were they not there? If they had believed this, would this happen? Did they ever actually yeah. get away? Were they ever actually there? I mean, maybe. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's why the buoy blew up. They never got past the buoy. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, they never got past the buoy. Maybe the buoy blowing up. Okay, so the Melkotians have the buoy out there, right? Mm-hmm. And from the point that they say, screw this, we're going around, nothing actually happens. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're watching the whole thing happen through the buoy, and the reason they blow up the buoy is because they need to release the control. Okay. Maybe. I, yeah. I don't know. See, yeah. again, there's just so okay. much. <laughs> I think this episode holds up wonderfully if you're willing to watch it. Because it's got, I mean, there's a high cheese factor. But if if you can get past that, this this episode is really almost mind-blowing. Well, that's what's cool about it is that the, anything that you could attribute to the cheese factor, you can kind of automatically forgive because you say to yourself, this is a, a product of imagination. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah, it's a TV show in the 60s, but it's a product of the imaginations of the characters within that TV show. So really anything goes mm-hmm. at that point. And the storytelling gets to be very broad and um, – uh, surreal, you know. So it, it, this is one of the few chances where Star Trek gets to do an exercise in style, um, and, and I wish that they had had the opportunity to do that in other episodes. We'll see some of that coming up, but I, I think nothing that really comes close to this. Um, I think the end of it, uh, we have kind of a lousy transition going from the gunfight back to Chekhov and his chair on the bridge. I don't know what I think would have worked better there exactly, but it seemed like that was a last-minute edit decision. Um, there may have been something else in the script that would have helped that moment, uh, but it, to me, it, it just didn't work. Um, but maybe it sort of lends itself, uh, the fact that it is so vague, that then you and I can have this conversation of saying, well, what really happened? Where were they? When did this take place? Mm-hmm. So it, in some respect, that works, but it, it, it did still bother me um but i do think this episode holds up really nicely just from a a a stylistic point of view uh just from the idea that we we get to play with things like reality and perception um again i I love spock's line in this and i love kirk's line in this i just didn't love it as much as his line in uh, a taste of armageddon but i think it's super cool it's a very very cool episode this episode is not message wise um, as strong as any of the number of episodes that it um, yeah, sort of references in a way, or that you mm-hmm. can't help reference if you're talking about it, with the mm-hmm. exception of uh, with the exception of and the children shall lead. Um, <laughs> right. And yet, I mean, it's drawing mostly again, with the exception of and the children shall lead, um, from very very strong episodes. And so you 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 get like a bunch of really neat ideas that we've explored in different ways all through the original series. And then throw in a little bit of um, the Matrix as a computer program, or you know, yeah. none of this is actually happening, but you've lived this whole time thinking it was. Yeah, this is this this episode. I think if you can get past the yeah you know, that that tiny little taste of cheese, um, <laughs> this episode I think is just is just absolutely amazing. Well, the question then becomes, what does everybody else think? Surely 
you have an opinion as well. Uh, and if you would like to share that opinion with us, we would love to hear it. You can reach us on all the social media, Facebook, Skype, Twitter, where our handle is Mission Log Pod. Uh, you can even call us at 323-522-5641. Again, that number, 323-522-5641. You can email us directly, missionlog at roddenberry.com. And please remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Next week, I'm kind of excited about this one. This is what it sounds like on Day of the Dove. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at k-i-theory.com. If anyone ever goes back through all of Kirk's captain's logs, they will likely come to the conclusion that he spent his five-year mission, baking. If you know what I mean. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com